Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you're while listening to Phyllis Faber. Yeah. Take a minute, turn the radio yeah. up. And take a seat in the pastor's office. Right. Grab the frequency, yeah. tune in. Get up, word. We're wearing Jonathan Mason. Oh, yes, you should. Take a minute, turn the radio up. And take a seat. Phillies favorite listeners, this is Pastor Jonathan Mason, and welcome to this edition of the Pastor's Office. It's a very special edition. Uh, Today we are going to celebrate Black History Month, but you know this show, you know me, we celebrate black history all the time. But I wanted to, on this very last Sunday in February, uh, bring you a special edition of the program. Uh, Before we even go there, I want you to know that we just left service just a few minutes ago. Today we celebrated our 63rd church anniversary. Uh, And can I tell you, it was so good to see some of the members uh, that we've not seen in almost a year uh, as a result of this pandemic. But I can tell you this much, uh, and we shared it with the congregation today, we've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word. He's never failed us yet. So you got to excuse me uh, if I'm excited today. You've got to excuse me if I feel filled today. Uh, but we had a chance to see a number of our members, and I was really excited about that. But we're glad to have you here today. Today, we're going to be interviewing two American heroes. Uh, one is Mrs. Rutha May Harris, uh, and the other is Mr. Bob Zellner. Let me introduce you to Miss Rutha May Harris. She was... And a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, one of the original freedom singers that traveled the country uh, singing gospel, raising money for the movement to help us to progress and to win our battle against Jim Crow. She was born in Albany, Georgia. Uh, I've got a kindred heart with her because she's a preacher's child as well as I am. Uh, So she knows what it's like to grow up the son uh, of a minister. Uh, She's lived her entire life in Albany, Georgia. But during the movement, she traveled the country singing the songs of Zion and letting people know that freedom and equality and justice were the only things that we would accept. You probably saw her over the last week uh, on the Black Church documentary Uh, that so many of us have been talking about over the last couple of weeks. It was a wonderful documentary. Uh, She played a prominent role uh, in that series. And when I saw her, I wrote a note to myself and to our producer uh, that we had to reach out and find her wherever she is and bring her into the pastor's office. So I'm excited to introduce you to Ms. Rutha May Harris. Let's welcome her into the pastor's office. Ms. Harris, how are you today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. We are so excited, and I want you to know it's an honor 
to have you here. Uh, and, I, and I just want to first just ask you uh, uh, to share with us just a little about your background. I know you're Albany, Georgia, born and raised, but tell us a little bit about your background. Tell us a little bit about your family life. Tell us what it was like growing up the daughter of a preacher. Well, I'm from Albany, Georgia. Did I say it wrong? Yes, you did. <laughs> oh, that's the northern in me. Even though I went to college in the south, I can still mess some words up. But, but go right ahead. Okay. Well, I was born on November 27, 1940, to the Reverend and Mrs. Isaiah Andrew Harris. And uh, I was I'm, I was born in the house where I still live. Wow. Uh, here in Albany, Georgia. I'm a... Um, which uh, uh, one of those babies that didn't get to the uh, hospital, uh, uh, Mary Coley baby, that's what we are called. Okay. Uh, I'm the seventh of eight children. Um, I grew up in Albany, Georgia. I attended schools in Albany, Georgia. I graduated from uh, high school in 1958, Monroe High School, and I I taught at Monroe High School um, from 1973 until I retired in 2003. After completing uh, one year of college at Florida A&M University, I um, came back home for the summer, and that is when I joined the uh, Civil Rights Movement. Now, here in Albany, Georgia. Now, 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 let me ask you this. Uh, you say you were one of those uh, Mary Coley babies. Now, I'm going to tell you something funny. I actually have a member of my church, and her name is Mary Coley. So so she might be listening right now and say, oh, my <laughs> goodness. <this> is... <laughs> yeah, she was a midwife. Okay, all right, yeah, all right. Yeah, and uh, all of us were, except the first, um, the first two of my siblings were born in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. That's where my mom is from, Jacksonville, Florida. Mm -hmm. And my daddy was away preaching, and that's where he met her in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. She was a young 19-year-old. All right. That caught his eye. Listen, listen, we understand. We understand. And a <laughs> lifelong love affair it was, and, 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 and they gave birth to you. Now, do you have any siblings? There were eight of us. Okay. Uh, everybody is deceased except number seven and number eight. Wow, wow. And the two of us are still here in the house. Now, now, now number eight is a male. Okay, all right. Now, let me ask you. Now, let me ask you. You say you've been in Al Albany all of your life. All uh, of my life, except for the time that I... Uh, started traveling with the original Freedom Singers. So, 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 what, 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 what motivated you to stay uh, there in Georgia? Was it just your love of your hometown? Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, uh, this is all I knew. Mm -hmm. um, was um, and of course I was sheltered. Okay. And uh, I went, and I wasn't able to soar. <laughs> understood, understood. Yeah, and so um, that's why I never did uh, leave Albany. I tried to leave my mom's house and get my apartment, but my mom uh, told me you waited too late. <laughs> okay, all right. And so not leave me now. So.
so you said you went to Florida A&M for one year and then came back home. Please tell us, uh, you know, did you, did you experience racism uh, growing up uh, there in Georgia? Is that what motivated you to get involved in now, the movement? Well, let me let me tell you about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up, our dad sheltered us from a lot of ills of segregation because he's we couldn't go to the movies, so I didn't know that uh, I couldn't you know, go through the front door of a movie. I had to go in the back door upstairs. And, of course, restaurants. And he said, I built a house for you, and there's a kitchen here. Hotels, there's your bedroom. So he sheltered us from all of that stuff. Okay. And when I came home for the summer of 61, that's when the uh, the Albany movement had begun. And uh, I just happened to be walking down the street one day, and one of the uh, SNCC workers asked me if I wanted to be free. Hmm. So I said, what do you mean if I want to be free? I am free. Oh, I thought I was free. I realized when I started doing voter registration, marching, and going to mass meetings that I was not free. Wow. Wow. And so my eyes became open during the Albany Movement. And um, that is when I found out I was not free. I started working doing voter registration. And during the voter registration drive, I met this young man who was 90 years old. We had what we call a citizenship school, where we taught them to read and write so they could become registered voters. So this young man was 90 years old. I call him young, okay? I heard you. Ninety years old, and I taught him to read, and I taught him to write wow. and his name. Wow. And upon teaching him to do that, I carried him down to become a registered voter. Now, that was one of the highlights of my uh, working in, in uh, voter registration. I could imagine. I could imagine. It, that, that's, that's one of my highlights. I can imagine. So, So how did you transition from working in voter registration teaching citizens to read and write to becoming a freedom singer? Okay, doing mass meetings. Uh, We would sing the songs uh, doing mass meetings. And, of course, Pete Seeger, who was a folk singer, uh, came here to Albany. And uh, knowing that SNCC needed funds, he approached uh, Cordell, and he said, Cordell, why don't you organize a group? so that you, can, you all can travel around and raise funds for SNCC. So the group was organized here doing the Albany Civil Rights Movement, which was in 1962. We were organized. There were four of us. Uh, Bernice Johnson Reagan, who's from Albany. Uh, Charles Nebler was from uh, Russellville, Kentucky. Cordell Reagan was from Nashville, Tennessee, and yours truly, Ruth Harris. Well, this group was formed, and we traveled 50,000-plus miles in nine months. Wow. Traveling 46 states. At that time, there were only 48 states. And, 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 and talk to me a little bit. Well, oh, you know what? Let's go back a little bit. So we formed okay. this group of four uh, that, that were to sing and raise money for SNCC and to inspire those that came to the mass gatherings. How did the, how did the four of you connect? Were they all there in, uh, in your area working in the movement? 
the three of us were in Albany, and then Chuck was called in to become a member of the group. Okay. All right. All right. And had singing been a part of your life uh, the entire time? Did you sing in the choir? All my life. I've been singing since I was six years old. I started singing in my dad's church. Okay. Mount Calvary Baptist Church. Gotcha. Now, do you remember your first trip, your first trip as a member of the Freedom Singers? And where was it, if you do remember? My first trip was in Urbana, Illinois, at the... the, YMYWCA convention in Urbana, Illinois. Now, that was our first concert. And our, 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 um, our agenda, our itinerary was uh, Pete Seeger's wife set up our itineraries. Okay. Now, how did you travel? Were you traveling by plane? Did you drive these 50,000 miles? We traveled. A young man named Lynn Dressler gave us a compact Buick. And that's how we traveled. And the reason I asked that question is because this was certainly in the middle of Jim Crow. I mean, it was what you all were fighting against. Right. I mean, talk to us a little bit about where you lodged on the road, what you encountered on the road, because clearly at that particular time you couldn't go to every hotel, you couldn't eat in every restaurant, uh, and, and you were encountering people who didn't even want you to be where you, you know, in their area. I mean, tell us a little bit about that and some of your okay, experiences. Okay, while traveling, um, we stayed in white people's homes, and we were fed. Uh, at one point, we were traveling through Alabama, and we were shot at, but nobody got hurt. So the three of us, you know, only three of us could duck, and the driver couldn't. So we were singing and praying. Wow. You talking about having a wonderful time? Mm-hmm. Singing and praying. We got through that. Nobody was hurt. That's the only um, encounter that we had while we were uh, on the road, and we stayed in white people's homes. Now what, now, what was that like? I mean, you grew up... Uh, uh, we were uh, treated like queens. Really? And princesses. Okay. We were dined and wined. Okay. All right. All <laughs> right. All right. So, they, so, that, so they, they understood the movement. They were supporters of the movement. Exactly. And they made provisions for you and the Freedom exactly. Singers to do what you needed to do. You are so right. Understood. Understood. And now, while we were out in California... Um, we got the word that we need to come to the march on Washington. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. But but let's 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 just deal with a couple other things before we get there because I know that had to be a high point of your experience. Uh, you had the opportunity traveling with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, being a part of the Freedom Singers, to interact with people that now. You know, we look at them as icons. We, we we look at them as our heroes, the people whose shoulders we stand on. And I think of people like, you know, Congressman John Lewis, who's a member of, of my fraternity, Phi Beta Sigma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of Andrew Young, who's been on our show previously. I think of Jesse Jackson. I mean, tell us some of your interactions and experiences uh, with some of these individuals who we hold in such high regard. With all those people, I had the experience of being their presence. Wow. Wow. We work together. I think I think on the Black Church documentary, uh, and and of course you know footage is what it is. But it looked like you were standing next to Andrew Young singing the song. Was that correct? Could have been. Yeah, yeah. It looked like it. It looked <laughs> like been. it. Could have been. Could have been. I've been on a, a lot of um, 
a lot of uh, programs with with Andy since the movement too. Mm. Okay, all right. But it could have been, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the songs. Here's one thing, you know, and I've watched. Gee, I, I've watched Eyes on the Prize. I've I, I make my sons watch every documentary about the movement uh, possible. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I recognized is that you took songs that were familiar to us. Uh, right. You took songs that we sang that were that were some of the traditional songs uh, of the Baptist Church, and you you kind of rearranged them for the movement. Tell us a little bit about that. Purposefully, because the songs of the civil rights movement were taken from uh, gospel songs, spirituals, even rhythm and blues. And the only thing we had to do was change the lyrics. Say, for instance, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom, was taken from I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, of course, We Shall Overcome came from I'll Overcome Someday. Songs like uh, This Little Light of Mine, uh, we just added lyrics to it. You didn't have to change any words to that. Uh, just add lyrics. So we used the songs that the congregation was uh, familiar with, and the only thing we had to do was teach the lyrics. Talk to us. What, what was your favorite song? I've got to know. <laughs> you know, I really don't have a favorite song because I love to sing, mm-hmm. uh, but... When I'm on a march, walk with me, Lord, walk with me, walk with me, Lord, walk with me. That was one of my songs. Oh, my God. You you, you ought to see me right now. I know we're separated by radio, but I'm about to shout up in this studio right now. If if you would have went to While I'm On My Pilgrim Journey. While I'm on this freedom journey, I want cheers, gotta have cheers, Philly's favorite listeners, I got you have just been blessed by a song from one of the freedom singers uh, from the civil rights movement. My God, you just blessed my soul with that. And 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 as I think about that, and, and knowing uh, knowing how important music is to the worship experience, uh, I, I think about the fact that you probably sang in a many cases at these rallies before a Dr. King or a Dr. or Dr. Young or. Abernathy or whoever the keynote speaker was, I know how important it is for me to have a good sermonic hymn before I preach. <laughs> Talk to me about the emotion in the room after you get done singing and that speaker gets up to the podium. Oh, man. It takes the music and the, and the, and Dr. King to get you on this march. Yes. That's all it takes. That's it. That's it. That's it. And, That's and, all it takes. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, you know, I had the privilege uh, in in uh, August of 2013 uh, to attend the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington hosted okay. by Reverend Al Sharpton, uh, mm-hmm. and I actually had a chance to speak uh, at that march, and I've got to tell you, it was awe-inspiring, and it was one of the highlights of my life, but you were there, 
You yeah. were there on that day. The yeah. Freedom Singers sang at the March on Washington. Can you please talk to me about that experience? What an experience of, of my life that I shall never, ever forget. We were out in California, as I said earlier, and uh, we got a chance to uh, travel by plane. Harry Belafonte chartered a plane, and we were asked to ride on that plane. And, of course, we had our own suite. So we thought we were in hog heaven. <laughs> so we get to March on Washington, and we, we're backstage at the, at the monument waiting for our time to come on. And... Um, and while back there, there was uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Do you know Peter, Paul, and Mary group? Puff the Magic Dragon, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Well, we were talking, and Mary says, uh, I don't think I'm going to be, we're going to be able to sing. I say, weren't you invited? She was crying because she thought they weren't going to be able to sing. I said, honey, you're going to be able to sing. You wouldn't have been invited if you weren't going to be able to sing. So they finally, they, they sang before we did. And, of course, when she passed away, I had the privilege of singing at her memorial in New York City. Wow. Wow. Talk but while at the March on Washington, that was such a, um, it was such a, I can't even describe how it felt to see all these people, all races, all colors, they just looked like little ants from where we were standing. And uh, one of the songs that I, I led was uh, We Shall Not Be Moved. You can find that out on YouTube. We're going to go look for it. We're going to go look for it. You you yeah. had an opportunity. All you got to do is is uh, Google Ruth May Harris, and you can, find, you can hear a lot of my stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. You had the opportunity to witness one of the iconic speeches in the history of America, uh, Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. Yeah, that's what he did that yeah, day. Yeah, we, we, we know that, that, that he delivered parts of that speech in other parts of the country prior to the march, but this was the time where he put it all together, and it's a speech that lives in the history of this country. Uh, mm -hmm. You were there. I was you, there. you felt the crowd. What, what, what was the feeling? The feeling was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. You can't can explain how how you how you how you how I felt when I you know when he was delivering that speech. It was just awesome. That's all I can say. Amen. 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 Well, well, listen. Uh, we truly are excited about the fact that we've had the opportunity to spend some time with living American history. Uh, uh, I became acquainted with your name and your work uh, as a result of Henry Louis Gates' documentary, uh, The yeah, Black I Church. Did that. I can't even remember back in the day. Right. Um, and it was on Morehouse campus in Atlanta, Georgia. Right, right, right. I, that's yeah. what I was going to ask you. How did, how did you end up becoming a part of that documentary? Yeah, he um, got in touch with me. Okay, okay, all right. And asked me if I'd come and do an interview. Now, I can't imagine <laughs> that that a woman with your energy, a woman with the impact that you have had uh, on this country, 
uh, is just uh, in retirement. What are you doing today? Tell our listeners what you're, what, what you're up to now. I never stop singing. I do virtual singing. I, I continue to tell the story of the civil rights movement through song. Before the pandemic, I was traveling to different colleges and universities, telling the story of the civil rights movement through song. And when this pandemic is over, I'll, uh, hopefully I'll be able to go back. I am now 80 years old. I just don't feel 80. Amen. Some people say I don't look 80. But I am eighty. <laughs> well, well, well. Listen, you're only you're only as old as you feel, That's uh, right. and I want you to know that it is a privilege and an honor to speak with you. I want to thank you for what you have done for us, uh, and and I want to thank you, and I want to encourage you to keep on, keep it on as long as the Lord keeps you here. Oh, uh, yes, and- I've had both of my vaccines. So I'm, I'm good. Amen. 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 <laughs> Ms. Rutha May Harris, one of the original freedom singers uh, as a part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Thank you so much for joining us in the pastor's office. And we look forward to being partakers of your wisdom again at some time in the future. God bless you, ma'am. Well, thank you, sir. Philly's favorite listeners, don't you dare leave your radio dial or leave the app. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. Philly's favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. Uh, Again, this Sunday, we are celebrating uh, Black History Month. But as I said earlier in the show, we celebrate Black History Month uh, 365 days a year of the year. Uh, But today, we especially wanted to talk to living history. Uh, you had an opportunity earlier to hear from Miss Rutha May Harris, one of the original freedom singers. But now it is my privilege and honor to welcome into the pastor's office the first white field secretary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, he was born and raised in Macomb, Alabama, uh, fa- a, fa- a son of a preacher. So he's a PK. He understands what that is. Uh, and he joined and participated in the civil rights movement. We're going to learn a lot about him. We're going to learn a lot about his journey. Uh, We're going to learn a lot about the movement itself over these next few minutes. Let me welcome into the pastor's office, Mr. Bob Zellner. Bob Zellner, welcome into the pastor's office. Uh, Thank you, Pastor Mason. It's very good. I'm always happy to talk to a preacher who knows what it means to be a preacher or a preacher's boy. But I'm a preacher's son, a PK, uh, from South or Lower Alabama. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, too, am a PK. As a matter of fact, I pastor the church that my father pastored for 41 years. Uh, and uh, and I know what it's like to grow up uh, the son of a preacher, the son of a pastor. So, first of all, uh, we are kindred spirits, but, but I'm just privileged to have you here. So excited that we were able to find you. I want to tell our listeners uh, what I shared with you earlier. I was watching, uh, or I was on Amazon. I had a free Saturday. I rarely get a free Saturday. Uh, and I was just looking for a movie. Uh, and uh, Amazon recommended that I watch a movie called Son of the South. Uh, I read the description, uh, and then I went ahead and paid the money and ordered the film. And this movie gripped me. Uh, 
Uh, it told the story of your life in the movement. Uh, and I told our producer, Naja, that we had to get you on the show. So I give her kudos for getting you on. But now I really want to pull back uh, the, the the page and just, just talk to you a little bit about your life. First of all, tell me what it was like growing up uh, in, in, in Macomb, Alabama, uh, in the heart of the Jim Crow South. Okay, yes. Uh, I did grow up in, uh, well, I did a lot of my growing up in East Bruton, Alabama, which is across the creek from Bruton, Alabama. And that's where uh, most of the rich people lived on Bruton side and the poor people lived on the East Bruton side, East Bruton, Alabama. And uh, that's how I did a lot of my growing up with people looking at me and saying, boy, you're on the wrong side of Murder Creek. Uh, so it meant that I was from the poor side and I would never amount to anything. So don't have any beliefs, uh, dreams in life because your life is set out for you now. But I learned that, uh, we can make our own way if we're willing to challenge, uh, what we're faced with. And I challenged it early on, uh, because of my Christian faith. And, uh, I'm glad I did. Well, now let's 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 talk about that for a little bit. Uh, your father was a Methodist minister, uh, and it also and, and I also did my research. Your father was a member uh, of the Ku Klux Klan, and so was your grandfather. Uh, so so yes. so just talk to us about before we even go into you joining the movement. Talk to us what talk to us uh, and share with us what it was like uh, to grow up in a home where your father uh, and your grandfather were members of well a, a white supremacist organization. Yes, uh, and when I do my lectures and uh, appearances, I usually say that I'm from a uh, Christian fundamentalist terrorist family. <laughs> okay. uh, and my father growing up in Birmingham was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and his father was. And so in my family, I just had a little bit more intensified struggle inside my primary family that all families in the South were going through because we had a way of life established uh, against the principles of Christianity. And so every Christian in the South had to be confronted from an early age with the uh, hypocrisy of preaching one thing and, and practicing another thing. And that was what my father came to grips with. And when he left the Ku Klux Klan, his father and mother disowned him and his brothers never spoke to him again in his whole life. Wow. So I was born in the struggle um, in 1939 uh, right after my father had come back from Europe, where he had been converted from being a Klansman to being an a internationalist um, and working with Dr. King and uh, Reverend Joe Lowry to undo segregation and undo racism in the South. And and, and you say that his your, your grandfather and his brothers, they did not speak to him for the rest of his life, I mean, that had to have an impact on him, and not just an impact on him, had to have an impact on you. Well, it did have an impact on me and my other, I have four brothers, 
there was daddy was a Methodist preacher, mother was a school teacher, and there were five boys. So, of course, we were affected by the struggles that daddy was going through. He called it wrestling with the angel. And he had seen the errors of his ways. He had seen that it was not the Christian way of the Ku Klux Klan. And he wrestled with having to break with his own family. And as a young person, I didn't know how devastating that could be to be disowned by your own mother and father. And so as I grew older in the struggle in Alabama, I understood more what my father had gone through. And he gave me a very courageous example. So you ended up going to Huntington College uh, in Montgomery. Uh, obviously, Montgomery was a hotbed for the movement. Uh, we know about Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and, and the bus boycotts that took place there with Rosa Parks. Um, so you, you went from, 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 from one hotbed to the next, uh, and, and you, you were assigned a project in college. Tell us a little bit about that project. Well, when I got to Huntington College in Montgomery, it was that was a normal place for me to go to be a uh, being a Methodist preacher's son, and I was uh, I had a call to the ministry, and my older brother had already gone to Duke University and gotten his doctorate of divinity, and he was a, a Methodist preacher. So my older brother and my father and my grandfather on my mother's side were all Methodist preachers, so that was what I was supposed to do. And Huntington, being our Methodist college uh, in the Alabama-West Florida Conference, that's where I would go. So uh, the higher power had me lined up from a very young age to become a part of this struggle. And uh, it has led just about everything in my life for the last 50 or 60 years, including the release of the movie that we just got done, Son of the South, which you saw. And what could be better timing uh, than a movie about white allies working with black brothers and sisters in the struggle than right now? It's a perfect time for it. So I always wound up in the right place at the right time and uh, I give that uh, all that guidance to the higher power, so, divine guidance. Sure, absolutely. So you re- so you you received this project on race, uh, and I believe you uh, were partnered with four of the other students. I believe they called you the Huntington Five. Uh, uh, how did you come about uh, taking on that project, and and where did that project end up leading you? Well, we became the Huntington Five because of all of the class, uh, the five of us decided that we needed to tell our professor that we were going to go and talk to Dr. Martin Luther King and Ms. Rose Park and Brother E.D. Nixon, who was uh, the branch president of the NAACP in Montgomery. And so we told our professor that we were going to go uh, do these interviews and attend a nonviolent workshop at Reverend Abernathy's church where Dr. King was going to be present and Mrs. Rosa Parks uh, because it was an anniversary 
celebration of the victory of the bus boycott. And our professor said, we couldn't do that. And we said, why? And he said, you'll be arrested. So being young sociologists, our imagination was piqued by the idea that you could be arrested doing research for a paper. And our professor said, well, you don't know anything about race relations in Montgomery, Alabama. I think that was in 1959, in 1959. And we said, that's why we're taking your course. So uh, we did go to that meeting, uh, a nonviolent workshop at Reverend Abernathy's church. And that's when the church was surrounded by the press and the police. And they sent word into Dr. King at the end of the meeting that the five of us were going to be arrested for breaking the segregation laws in Montgomery. And that's the way we, uh, we were asked to uh, resign from school because we broke the segregation laws and we were called into the office of the attorney general and a huge uproar occurred in Montgomery because we had gone to uh, a black Baptist church and attended a, workshop on nonviolence. So that was how uh, we got involved to begin with. And once, uh, once the Southern establishment said to us as young white people, you are not going to even be allowed to investigate this or study it, we said, no, we do have a right to do that, and we will continue to exercise that right. And that's why we went to the workshop, and then we were uh, asked to resign from school, and the attorney general of the state of Alabama called us into his office, and he said, "We have fallen." He said, "You boys have fallen under the communist influence." And somebody said, "You mean there's communists in Alabama?" <laughs> and he said, "No, but they come through here." So oh. that was the buzzsaw that we had run into, just trying to investigate, just trying to practice scholarship about race and racism as it was practiced at that time in Alabama. And and the reaction of your classmates, the, the reaction of your community uh, when you made a full commitment to the movement, uh, a white uh, southerner from Alabama uh, who had grown, grown up with them, who they knew very well, and, and, and you went against the grain. What, what, what was the reaction? Well, the reaction at the time was that uh, you know, most of my classmates who were uh, Ku Klux Klan-minded, and some of them were organized in the Ku Klux Klan, uh, because they knew us, they weren't going to do us bodily harm. But the movie points out that my grandfather, being a, still a member of the Ku Klux Klan, he said, uh, some of these old boys uh, mean to do you harm, Bob. And so he was, he was uh, a sweet old grandfather, but he also had to tell me that if I came to march in Birmingham, he would personally shoot me. He said, I'll put a bullet in your head myself. Wow. So that was how strongly the old racists felt about the system. 
And of course, I've studied a lot since then, caste and class. And caste is really the uh, the most uh, protected thing in the United States. And they still fiercely protect it. And that's why they'd rather have uh, authoritarian government, a racist authoritarian government, than democracy. So it joins the issues were joined 50 years ago that we're still fighting over today. And, and, and a lot of times people don't realize the 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 physical violence uh, that you and people like yourself encountered uh, during the movement. I, I, I was drawn to one of the marches you uh, participated in in Macomb uh, on October 4th, 1961. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you encountered there. Uh, tell us a little bit about the violence and the lasting effects from it. Well, that's a very tall question, but uh, it is true that my first staff meeting of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, was in Macomb, Mississippi. And uh, that's because Herbert Lee, uh, who was working with Bob Moses on voter registration, Herbert Lee had been murdered by his next-door neighbor, E.H. Hurst, who was a member of the Mississippi State Legislature. And that's why we had our staff meeting in Macomb, because SNCC had a policy of not meeting in Atlanta or Nashville or New Orleans in a safe rear area. If we had people that were being killed or their lives were at stake in the field, like in Macomb, Mississippi, that's where we would go to have our meeting. So that's why I was there. It was actually the first full staff meeting of SNCC because the staff really came together in the fall of 1961. So it was my first meeting. And while we were in the SNCC meeting, uh, 130-something high school students from Bergland High School walked out of the school to protest the murder of Herbert Lee and the expulsion of Brenda Travis and other students who had been on the Freedom Ride. And so that was when I joined uh, the march in Macomb. And it was very brutal, yes. Uh, and it was almost movie-like, which uh, now is actually portrayed in the movie, because one of the people in the mob that attacked us was my classmate from Huntington College named Doc. And he had been my nemesis at Huntington because he was more or less the uh, head of the Klan group of students at Huntington College. And I had no idea when I went on the march in Macomb, Mississippi, that that was his hometown. So when he saw me in the march, uh, he just assumed that I had organized the whole thing. And uh, there was a very funny article on the front page of the New York Times on October the 5th about the demonstration. And uh, the New York Times article said that the demonstration was the first high school march in the, in the state of Mississippi in the modern civil rights movement. And it was led by Bob Zellner, a field secretary of Nick. And I was the most uh, inexperienced person there 
Brenda Travis, who was 16, had already been arrested three times. So the young students had more uh, experience than I did. But when the reporters saw one white person with all of the black people, they just assumed that I was the one that was responsible for organizing the thing. Uh, they uh, attacked the students. Uh, when we approached the town hall in Macomb, the street was blocked by four or 500 people in the middle of the street with baseball bats, pipes, chains, uh, wrenches, all kinds of weapons, bricks. And the students uh, started standing up on the stoops of the uh, town hall praying, and the police would come over and drag them off. And then a little group of Klansmen gathered around me and started beating me. And uh, Bob Moses and Chuck McDo, uh, black staff members of SNCC, came over to stand between me and the mob. And the police came over and, uh, and beat them in the head and dragged them off. And then they, after they got me in the town hall, the police chief got very angry and just turned me over, threw me out in the hall and turned me over to the mob. And they took me out and threatened me with a hangman's rope. While they were trying to drag me out into the street, I held on to the rails down the city hall steps and they couldn't pull me loose from the rail. So somebody came over the back of my head uh, and started trying to put their fingers in my left eye socket. And they were trying to get a hold of my eyeball to pull my eyeball out. They were going to blind me. And that was my first experience with mayhem. And it was all directed against uh, any white person who wanted to step out of line and and join forces with the black people, they were they were you know, unmercifully attacked because the white people were afraid that if more white people came to the the black movement, that segregation would fall down and they would lose their way of life. So they didn't tolerate any, even the smallest dissension. They would attack. But Mr. Zellner, I mean. You could have easily left the movement and assimilated back into society, and I'm sure family, friends, and everyone would have accepted you. You know, what was it that drove you to continue to endure? I mean, you you, you went to Danville. You went. You were you were part of the, the, the Freedom Summer in 1964. I mean, you, you did so much for the movement uh, in spite of the adversity and the persecution. Uh, almost reminds me of what a lot of the apostles endured uh, when they were spreading the good news of Jesus. Uh, 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 what, what made you stay in the race? Well... Uh, one of the things, Pastor Mason, that uh, that inspired me to stay the course uh, was that uh, when I first came, there was a lot of suspicion against a white Southern boy from Lower Alabama about why I wanted to join a, a black outfit, as they said. It was run by uh, young black women and men. What did I? What What did I? what business of it was of mine. So they were suspicious of me from the beginning. And a lot of times uh, 
the young black people in the movement thought that if you were a white person, you could join the movement for a while, and then if you decided, you could always go back to being a white person. <laughs> so that was one of the reasons that I stuck, um, I am still uh, with the cause, and that is that I promised to be trustworthy, and uh, so I had a uh, commitment to stay the course and to continue to fight my whole life to end this brutality and oppression against black people, especially black children. You're listening to Philly's Favor, 100.7 FM and 99.5 HD3. We're in the pastor's office with the first Whitefield secretary uh, of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Mr. Bob Zellner. Uh, you know, one of the things that fascinated me, Mr. Zellner, uh, is the training that members of SNCC had to go through. Uh, before they were able to go out into the field. Uh, I've watched some of that grainy black and white footage, and it was like going through a boot camp. But but what I want to understand is what was it like when training met reality? How did you? How were you able to maintain that nonviolent posture in the face of such chaos and in the face of such persecution? Uh, well, uh, Pastor Mason, it was... Uh Sometimes it was hard to maintain nonviolence, and sometimes it was easier because we knew that we couldn't, uh, as a movement, we couldn't fight with weapons uh, because the uh, if we fought with weapons, we would be annihilated. So it was a practical thing, nonviolence was, and also uh, part of the enormous power of nonviolent direct action is being nonviolent and having the moral high ground, as uh, Cedric the Entertainer kept saying, as uh, he portrayed Reverend, movie, he portrayed Reverend had, Abernathy in the movie. Reverend Abernathy, right. yes, that, that we have the moral high ground. And the way that we had that was to maintain nonviolence. And it was particularly difficult for me because I had been trained as a martial arts uh, instructor. So I was trained in martial arts, and so my reflexes were to fight with my fists and with my strength. Um, so it was difficult for me to change my whole training and my reflexes from being uh, physical and using my martial arts skills to being nonviolent. So but it was also a discipline. So I was under I, I knew what it was, was like to practice something and and get a discipline in it. So once it worked, uh, my martial arts training came to my uh, to my aid many times, especially when I was arrested uh, so many times in the early days. The jails were segregated, so I was housed with the white prisoners, and the police always made it clear that I was the freedom rider or the end lover, and they made it clear to the inmates that the inmates in the jail would be uh, rewarded 
for any damage they did to me. So I, I had to um, rely on my martial arts uh, discipline to stay in a corner and make sure I couldn't get, nobody could get to my back. And that's one of the reasons I have severe post-traumatic stress now is that I can't stand for anything to be happening behind me. So I have to have a wall to my back. But it did help me a lot because sometimes um, the inmates wouldn't attack because they didn't know exactly what I might do in response, especially since I was charged with things like criminal anarchy, overthrowing the government. So they didn't know I was a really bad dude or what. So they didn't want to take any chances. Right, right, right. Now, now, as the story goes, you ended up leaving SNCC uh, and and moving to another organization. And you gave a great deal of your life. You you gave your body to SNCC. Uh, what was it that caused you to move on uh, and and, uh, and and leave that that historic organization? Well, in the late part of the 1960s. Um, our brothers and sisters in the movement, in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, said to the white people in SNCC, it's time for you to go do anti-racism organizing with the white people in the South, the poor and working-class white people. And we said, what are you talking about? Those are the people that shoot at us all the time, and they all, they've been trying to kill us all this time. And they said, yeah, but that's not our problem. That's white people's problems, so y'all go organize the white people. So that's what happened in the late 60s. Uh, SNCC became an all-black organization, and it was up to us to um, design and finance a white organizing project, which I undertook that challenge uh, with my wife, Dorothy, and we uh, designed and organized the GROW Project, Grassroots Organizing Work, which we also call Get Rid of Wallace, George Wallace. Okay. And that way everybody knows where we're coming from. So we worked for 12 years in the GROW Project, and we worked with a lot of white Southerners, poor and working class white Southerners, some of whom, many of whom, who had been active in the Ku Klux Klan, and they came to work with the, with the black movement through the Gulf Coast Pulpwood Association and other kinds of union organizing that we did in the GROW Project. Well, Mr. Zellner, I want to certainly thank you for joining us here in the pastor's office today. Uh, there is so many. Uh, I've got so many more notes, but I promised uh, your team that we would not keep you more than a half hour. Uh, but I'm surely hoping that we can call on you again in the future because your work didn't end in the 60s. Uh, you're still working today. Uh, you're still you're still participating in Moral Mondays. I mean, you've given your life to the movement. So, Mr. Zellner, we just want to thank you for your commitment to the movement. I want to thank you for the time that you've given us today uh, to share your story. Uh, and it's my prayer that we'll be able to talk again in the future. Sir, God bless you, and thank you for being in the pastor's office. Uh, thank you, Pastor Mason, and it's a delight to talk to you. And anytime you want to talk to me and uh, send our voices out over 
Sunday afternoon. I am delighted to talk with you. I love to talk to people who know so much about the movement and are so committed to it themselves. It's a, it's a wonderful privilege to talk to you. God bless you, sir. Thank you so much. We'll be back with you real soon, and I mean that. Thank you, Mr. Zellner. Thank you. Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Just for a minute, just for a minute, let's talk about it just for a little while.